Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we've got a lot of news. Yes, on the Russia investigation, about Dr. Fauci, the head of the infectious disease effort on coronavirus. And uh, we're going to have a little bit different guest today. Instead of a political newsmaker, we're going to have a statistician who has a very different look at the coronavirus pandemic. Instead of looking at it through the lens of emotion and death and political fighting, Uh, Dr. Newt Witkowski is going to talk to us about what a statistician sees in the numbers and how it compares to other respiratory viruses that have swept our country through the years. He's pretty controversial. He's one of the people who advocated early on not doing social distancing and instead letting the uh, virus run through the country so that we would get to herd immunity quicker. Um, But when you listen to him, he has a statistical view, not a political view. Uh, a very interesting and different take on the pandemic. I think it would be worth your time to to hear a different perspective from a different discipline other than medicine and politics. So we're going to be uh, having Dr. Witkowski here in just a little bit. And first, we're going to go to commercial break when we come back. Big developments on the Russia case. You need to hear this. I've got a new column out. 13 reasons why the FBI never had a basis for opening an investigation of Trump's campaign. You're going to want to hear that. And we take a look at Dr. Fauci. Yes, Anthony Fauci, the infectious disease chief for the country. We take a look at some of his comments. Over the weekend, he made a stir suggesting there was resistance to his idea to do social distancing. He since backed off on that. We went back and took a look at what Dr. Fauci was saying in February and March. And it doesn't quite add up to social distancing. You're going to want to hear that as well. Stay tuned. We're going to go to a quick commercial break. Come right back. All right, everybody, welcome to a special edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're joined by a very special guest. Dr. Newt Wachowski, a biomedical researcher and statistician, is here to talk about some of his theories and research and work that he's done on the coronavirus and the possibility that our public policy makers may have gotten the wrong approach on this. Dr. Witkowski, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, could you introduce yourself a little bit? You have a, a very distinguished background and worked at Rockefeller University up in New York. Just uh, tell folks a little bit about your background, your training, how uh, how you came to become involved in, in this particular debate. 
I was working for 15 years in Germany at the University of Tübingen with one of the leading epidemiologists in the world who actually coined the term reproduction number, Klaus Dietz. And then I came to the Rockefeller University where I was heading the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology and Research Design for 20 years. That's great. And your training is both in uh, the medical and the statistical world. Is that correct? I have a master in statistics, a PhD in computer science, and a doctor of science in medical biometry, which covers genetics and epidemiology. Fantastic. So you uh, have been quoted recently, and I also have taken some incoming fire from uh, from colleagues uh, about uh, some of the approaches uh, that we've taken early on in the coronavirus fight, specifically related to whether it was smart to do social distancing short term, long term, and and what the trade offs have been. And I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what you've what your analysis has shown so far. So we have seen no evidence that this is different in the spread and in the severity from other respiratory diseases often known as flu. So yeah, it's a coronavirus, but we had coronaviruses before. Uh, but what we have seen starting with the epidemic in China is it does exactly what all other respiratory disease epidemics during the flu season do. They come for two weeks, they stay at the peak, they go, and it's over when we have what's called herd immunity, meaning that the majority of people had one form of contact with the virus or another. Most of the time people don't even realize it, but they still have immunity as they would have with the vaccine. And as soon as the majority of people is immune, uh, the virus cannot spread anymore and the whole thing is over. And when you look at the models and you, you create your own statistical analysis, where are you seeing the data that would lead you to believe that we have widespread penetration of this virus already? Uh, we don't have data for that. We would need antibody tests, and these antibody tests have not been done yet in the U.S. In Germany, it was done in one city that was particularly hard hit, and they found that 15% at the time was immune, and in the meantime, it's probably higher. And uh, would that be consistent with what you would eventually see with a, with a, a seasonal flu? Yeah. We, we expect this to be much higher than that. So we want to have the majority of people, maybe 70, maybe even 80%, become immune by having some form of contact with the virus, and uh, then they, the virus is gone, and it's over. And it's over forever for the next 15 years, because that's how long herd immunity lasts. Interesting. Now, let me ask you this. The uh, early on, there was a decision made to create social distancing. Uh, predominantly, it appears to, to lessen the burden on overcrowded uh, and understaffed or under-resourced hospitals. As you look back at that, was that a good call or a bad call from a policy judgment? It was bad. And not just looking back, it was bad looking forward. And I have published that three more than three weeks ago when the discussion was uh, being held, there, it was never a good idea. And describe for people who have been trapped in their homes now for 
approximately a month. Uh, why, why then did we end up in this position and what would have been a better alternative? Uh, so first, you were asking about hospitals. If you had let the schools remain open, the epidemic would have done for all respiratory disease epidemics do. It would have run through the school children who are the least affected. So the vast majority of children would be infected, immune, without knowing it, or they would have running nose for one day or a sore throat for one day, and that would be it. So there is no expected load on hospitals. Children who get a respiratory disease like this, they don't need to go to a hospital. And neither do young adults like their parents. They also don't need to go to a hospital, at least not in relevant numbers. So the epidemic would have run without any additional load on hospitals. As long as we keep the elderly and those who have comorbidities uh, at a distance to the children who are getting infected. And this is something that people do just with every respiratory disease during the few weeks when the epidemic is running, people who are at risk would stay at home and make sure that they don't get too much, much exposure. Now, the um, when you look at it statistically, uh, did you see a higher morbidity rate than traditional flu among the elderly or among people who have pre-existing conditions for which this virus seems to have a uh, profound effect? Is this more deadly among the impacted population than a regular flu or, or the same? We have seen death virtually only among the elderly and those uh, who also have comorbidities. There are always some exceptions, but we know that in Italy, for instance, it was 88%, if I remember right, of those who died were older than 75 and had uh, severe comorbidities. Uh, something in that range. So we have no evidence that this is different from other uh, in, uh, respiratory diseases. They all affect primarily the elderly, or at least most of them. And do you have any sense when you compare elderly to elderly from various respiratory diseases, SARS, MERS, uh, the normal flu, uh, is this one um, uh, more... Uh, mortal, more uh, intense than other respiratory flus, or is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell. It could be that there is a bit more respiratory distress rather than pneumonia. Uh, that might be, we have some evidence for that, but it's in the end, doesn't make much of a difference. We, and we see that in the number of deaths. So any the typical number of deaths during flu season in the United States is somewhere between 25 and 75,000 people. So, so far we have 22,000 deaths, uh, even if that should double and go to 45,000 deaths in the United States, that would be just a normal flu. 
And as you look at the statistical curve and we're talking about flattening the curve, all these things, um, where do you think this will end up based on your current projections? And given that we have enough of the evidence of the disease in our country now, do you have a guess at what sort of uh, mortality rate, mortality toll we may see here? Okay, we are at the peak of the number of cases. We have uh, already 22 thousand deaths, uh, make it another 25,000 deaths or something like that, and then it will be over. So in the end, there will be not more deaths than you, we would have during a regular flu. Now, flattening the curve is an idea that lay people have. It's not what an epidemiologist would recommend, because flattening the curve means it takes more time for the virus to run its course and you may not reach the herd immunity you want to actually get rid of it. If you are flattening, then you are, as I said, prolonging the ordeal, and you may actually get a rebound as soon in autumn or some winter, as soon as the people spend more time indoors rather than outdoors. And that is not a good idea to have. Right. Now, in the 45,000 to 50,000 range where you may be projecting the current death toll, that's sort of consistent where the models are now dropping, right? These models were at, you know, 200,000 and now they're dropping and dropping. They're at 60,000. Do you expect the models to, uh, that the White House has been using, the, you know, the University of Washington model specifically, the Murray model, do you expect that to continue to decline in its projection of deaths? Well, eventually, reality is overriding all models. Uh, yeah, so at the end, you'll, you'll know because we actually have data and, uh, and that's it. But you see this tracking in, that, in that, uh, that range. You don't see a second spike. We have seen the epidemic run its course in China, in South Korea, in uh, Italy, Spain, Germany, Scandinavia, and we have... We have seen a lot of deaths in Italy because Italy has a very old population. Next to Japan, it's the country with the most elderly people. It may also be that a slightly more dangerous strain of the virus was migrating through South Korea, Iran, Italy, and the neighboring countries compared to is different strain that came through other routes. Uh, only the virologists genotyping the viruses will know in the end if that was the case, but it's a possibility. Now, if, if this finishes where you project it will, uh, this will be slightly less deadly, is that correct, than the H1N1 outbreak of um, uh, a decade ago? Yes. So given that, why have we had, in your estimation, such a different intense reaction this time? If this is tracking along what you know other bad uh, viruses have, how did we end up closing our economy down for two months and, and taking all the social distancing and doing all these extreme measures? How could so much of uh, politics and science gone this far this time and not as far in prior uh, pandemics and uh, epidemics? 17 million people in the U.S. becoming unemployed is a huge disaster. This is more serious in its consequences than any flu has ever been. Now, 
a potential factor that I see is the internet, that now rumors and fears can spread much faster than previously and affect more and more people. And we haven't yet learned how to manage a panic that is created via the internet. And we haven't, we, I have no idea whether it was just what people did or if somebody was behind it and actually stirring the fear. Huh. And when you look out now, if we all went back to work and life as normal, which Governor Cuomo today said in New York, they're going to begin to do regionally in the, the tri-state area. Uh, is there a danger of a second round of this breaking out or is this just going to run the course the way every flu does and die out? We're not going to be talking about it in September. Well, we don't know. It may be that because of the social or antisocial distancing that we haven't reached herd immunity. And if we haven't reached herd immunity, there may be a rebound because only herd Im the only thing that stops a respiratory disease epidemic short of the vaccine that we don't have and won't have for the uh, next year at least or something like that. The only thing that stops uh, the spread of the respiratory disease epidemic is herd immunity. And you're confident that we can get there without a massive death toll, but um, but it, it may require what more exposure because we stopped it too soon. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh, you understand it correctly, but actually... We might now see that more people are dying than otherwise would have died. Because uh, if you know from the beginning the epidemic will be over in a few weeks, uh, it's easy to convince the elderly and those who are vulnerable uh, to separate themselves and wait until it's over. Now that it's dragging on and will drag on even more, uh, it will be more difficult to get those who are really at risk to comply. And that may mean that we have more deaths and more problems in hospitals than we otherwise would have had. So it may backfire. But even with a backfire, you don't expect this to drop into hundreds of thousands of deaths, even if we have a second round. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that will be... Uh, the low 10th of 10,000, 20,000, because the second round will not be as intense as the first round, because there will be some immunity already in the population, so it will not spread as much as it did the first time around. But the second time around, we should be patient and just let it run. There is a, actually a principle in medicine, it's Latin, primo nil nocere, First, do no harm. Right. And here, an intervention was chosen that was known to have severe side effects on society and economy without any evidence that it would be effective. The FDA would never allow a medication to come to the market with the same ratio of known side effects and lack of efficacy. Hmm. So we, we had a, a, a non-efficacious uh, economic solution, but not one that actually had any better value in your mind in, in treating uh, the medical side or medical threat of this. Is that correct? Uh, it was a disaster on virtually every scale you could measure it. Nature 
and we have evolved to coexist with these respiratory viruses. They have been around forever. And when we try to be more, no better than nature of how to deal with the problem, we better look for evidence first before we're just guessing something and follow some pundits who really don't really know what they're talking about. Now, you've come under a lot of criticism. In fact, even today, Rockefeller University sort of did a little distancing from you saying you never taught here. You just. OK, I'm not with the Rockefeller. You were just a biostatistician. Well, just a biostatistician was what your job was supposed to be. But talk about the, the backlash of of those in the in the medical uh, community uh, being concerned about your your diagnosis of how we did this wrong. Uh the only thing that I see is that more and more people realize that it was wrong. So there's very little criticism that I'm hearing now because the evidence is now there. Uh, it wasn't so bad. And we haven't seen any difference in any country. So different countries have done very different things and they all are getting better now. So it seems that whatever we're seeing has nothing to do with the intervention. And it was just the natural course of the disease as these respiratory diseases spread, is it? Yes. Yeah. The, um, if you're, you're at the end of January, early February, and you're with President Trump, and you're, you're in the position that Dr. Fauci's in, what would you have told President Trump or Governor Cuomo or Governor Newsom, here's what you should do? What you do with every respiratory disease, uh, make sure that the elderly are being protected come up with, like Australia did, say, well, elderly people can order from the pharmacy and the government pays for drugs to be delivered, the government pays for food to be delivered to allow them to stay at home, and otherwise let the epidemic run like every other respiratory disease epidemic. And would that have been very popular at the end of January? It, the pro it was not January, it was February. Uh, so in January, we were just looking at something strange happening in China, and nobody could really know whether this was a local problem or something that would spread. Uh, once it went to South Korea, uh, that, that was February, uh, then we realized this is something there is a risk, and it was by the end of February that these decisions needed to be made. And at that time, we had already the experience from China and South Korea, and we knew this is just respiratory disease. That is a flu, so to say it. And interestingly, the president too shared that opinion and initially said we have never shut down the economy because of the flu. And then that changed, and probably we will know in, not too, in the not too far future what made the president change his correct assessment of the situation. When you look out, what is the biggest lesson we are to learn from this pandemic? Uh, we're going to have more, obviously. We know that over the years. Um, what is what is the lesson that we um, that we should take from what, what has happened here? One thing is to actually engage the scientists who are experts in that field. So neither virologists nor MDs 
get the training and the experience needed to assess the non-linear non dynamics of epidemics. We have people who do that for a living and are training for many years to get it right. And these people should at least be heard. And uh, why were their voices drowned out then? It's, that's a great question because you're right. When, when you think of an infectious disease outbreak, the first person you're turning to are epidemiologists, right? Why were their voices not heard in the midst of all of this panic? I think there is there's this idea that everything that has anything to do with health is something MDs are experts in. And I think that is not correct. The, uh, it's a remarkable uh, take. And I know a few weeks ago when people were scratching their head and, and saying, what's this guy talking about? Wait a second, we're all, look at the New York City's emergency rooms. But every day we have seen these models adjust much closer to your initial predictions and much further from the, the panicked sort of excessive numbers that, that were originally being uh, there. When you look now, there's not going to be a shortage of respirators in New York, is there? Oh, no, of course not. There's also no shortage of beds. Right. I mean, the Javits Center was essentially empty. Yep, so was the comfort. Uh, the hospital ship that came here was never really used. There are enough respirators. And actually, people now find out that respirators have been overused, that maybe a respirator was not the right thing to do for this particular disease. Uh, but this is something that the future will tell. But there is no shortage uh, for the health system in general. Yeah, and it seems as though that even as it runs the rest of the course of the country, because it does, it runs in different segments across the country, right? Now, not everyone gets it at the same time. Communities kind of merge, but you don't see a critical care shortage uh, as it sweeps the rest of the country, do you? No, nowhere. Nowhere even near. Yeah, that's going to be a remarkable outcome. Now, some will say, well, it's because of the social distancing. Yeah, and the sky didn't fall down because of that either. Right. Yeah, very good point. Yes. Well, one of the questions is, if this is so similar to what we saw with H1N1, uh, President Obama never really uh, got us to the point of doing the, the extreme social distancing and the shutting down of the economy. Why such a different reaction in 2020 uh, than we would have had uh, during the H1N1 ep epidemic of 2009? Uh, I mean, one thing could be the Internet, as I I think it had played a role here. Right. The other thing is that the role of science um, and the impact on science on politics has changed. So I see several potential factors that could play a role here. And um, one of the things I'm doing today is I went back and I took a look at the evolution of Dr. Fauci's comments because on Sunday he made a comment if we had just simply acted more abruptly in January and we started severe social distancing in January, we could have saved a lot of lives. But when I look back, I looked at his comments and I saw in March, he said, no, you can still go on a cruise ship as long as you're not an elderly person or sick. Uh, he, he said he didn't think that shutting down all flights would make sense, uh, that while he wouldn't go to a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic, he didn't see a reason that others couldn't. Um, when you judge Dr. Fauci's comments and the evolution of his statements over time, what takeaway do you have as someone who really just looks at the numbers? I mean, you're, you're, you're data driven. You look at, you know, what really happened, not what people are projecting is going to happen. Yeah. I'm data driven. And so 
The only thing that I can say is that there was an article, I think it was in the New England Journal of Medicine that he wrote. Yes, we wrote about it. Uh, where he said, this looks very much like a flu. That he did. And then a few days later, he gave an entirely different assessment of uh, it in before Congress. And then, you know, the article was published in, in February online. Then he gives a very different assessment on Congress. And as you know, in the New England Journal of Medicine, if your assessment has changed, you have to contact the journal and say, pull that article down before it gets into the print publication. But he allowed that article to go through and be uh, printed, which means he's sort of on both sides of the statistical debate, right? He's he's he staked out a position in a journal that this may just be another flu-like you know virus, and he's also staked out the worst-case scenario. Will will people be able to differentiate which which one turned out right? As I cannot really comment, make any more comments because uh, that's not my area of expertise, and I wasn't involved in all of that. But I think uh, it will be worth. Uh, for journalists to investigate what actually happened during that period of time where so many people made a 180-degree turn and said the opposite what they said before, and that is the president, that is Fauci, that was here in New York, that was the mayor de Blasio who said, on one day, we are not going to close schools, right. and the next day he was closing schools. Right. And so now we have the opposite, right? Now, now de Blasio wants to close schools for the end of the year, and Governor Cuomo wants to reopen them up. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, so they just switched the roles. They did. Uh, but neither of them can agree with himself. Yeah. Uh, so somehow the dynamics here are very strange, and I, would long, I think it would be worth looking how did our governments uh, screw up the decision process to the extent that 17 million people and counting became unemployed, that trillions of dollars were wasted that could have been spent on, you know, here in New York, just think of the tunnel between Manhattan and New Jersey, uh, of other infrastructure measures on improving healthcare, it, there are lots of things uh, one could have used a couple of trillion dollars for and really changed, make a change to the better, and that uh, opportunity was wasted. It is. A, it, we will look back and, and learn a lot, I'm sure, from this. I want to ask one last question of you because this emerged over the weekend. Um, the Santa Clara County uh, Executive in California, so in the area around San Francisco, was quoted over the weekend in local newspapers that he's been meeting with the CDC and there is a growing belief that an outbreak of pneumonia or what was diagnosed at the time as pneumonia in uh, December in Santa Clara and in the San Francisco area may actually have been early COVID. Uh, do you have any sense that this could have been playing out earlier and that that would further accentuate your point that this was just another respiratory flu? I think people will genotype and look for antibodies. Right. And if the antibodies cross-react, then we know that this may actually have been the case. But I I have no evidence one way or the other. Yeah, it was it's a brand new information that came out of the out of the West Coast and uh, it's all it's getting a lot of conversation today. But that's um I'm trying to stick to things that I actually know. Right. <laughs> well that's what makes a good statistician for sure and a good <laughs> researcher. Now uh, have you done work for the NIH before? 
I haven't done work for the NIH. No. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, okay, so at the at the end of the day, uh, one last question. We'll wrap this up because I know you're very busy. When when we um, when we create a post mortem action list of things we should do for the next coronavirus outbreak because coronaviruses will come back around as well many other flus. Are there some better preparation that we can do so that we don't have to shut the economy down? Are there things like resupplying, retraining uh, that beyond beyond the philosophical shift that we, we in your mind, overreacted here? Uh, what are some of the lessons that we can do to better prepare for a coronavirus outbreak should it hit five, 10 years from now? I think that epidemiologists should be included in the decision process and not just one as in Britain, because it should be a broader, one should look for a broader consensus among people, scientists who are involved in the field. I think that is a lesson to be learned. It shouldn't be nobody and it shouldn't be only one person. Uh, it should be a broader consensus reached before doing uh, things that are dangerous to the economy and society. Well, that's a very important lesson for all of us to learn then, sir. Well, Dr. Wachowski, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights and your statistical analysis. I know our listeners are going to deeply benefit from it, and we, we wish you well in your future research. Thank you very much. Right, America, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Now, tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to do a special edition of the podcast, Publish Off Cycle. We've got an extraordinary interview with Michael Pillsbury, the private advisor to Donald Trump on all things China. He's got some fascinating views. He's got a new book out as well. But he's got some fascinating views on what, how we should deal with China in the trade wars, in the aftermath of coronavirus in the aftermath of their aggression in the South China Sea. This is a must-hear interview. You're going to want to learn a lot from Michael Pillsbury. He has the inside scoop. He has the ear of the president on all things China. We're going to do a special edition then. And on Thursday, we're going to have the young conservative activist Charlie Kirk on to talk about how the coronavirus is affecting millennials, what millennials are likely to do during the election uh, the big battles on free speech uh, against the giant tech companies on Silicon Valley and on college campuses across the country, including a troubling rise of anti-Semitism. You're not going to want to miss either of those podcasts. We're going to do three editions this week, a little bit more while you're stuck at home. Some food for thought, some food for your ears as you're listening. Tune in. We really appreciate your support. And please support those uh, great advertisers who support this just the News Podcast. We'll see you tomorrow. Until then, be safe, be healthy, be happy.